Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are doing Apocrypha Part 3. This may be a shorter episode because we're only covering... And what's going on here? We have Letter of Jeremiah, um, the additions to Daniel, 1st through 4th Maccabees, and I believe 1st and 2nd Esdras. Oh, and the prayer of Manasseh and Psalm 151, which, by the way, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Manasseh correctly. But that's what we're covering today. And Apocrypha Part 1, we covered the canonicalists and the tradition of rejecting the Apocrypha in the church. And then Part 2, we started surveying the works of the Apocrypha with brief summaries, and today we're going to continue that. Uh, which we're getting close to First Maccabees, which was heavily influential. So let's start with the letter of Jeremiah. Um, one second here. Okay. So the letter of Jeremiah claims to be a copy of a letter that was originally composed by Jeremiah. Um, the letter seems to say it was written in the early 6th century BC to those who were in Judea who were about to be exiled, but most scholars consider it dated to the Hellenistic period. Usually when a writing claims to be composed by someone, then it's not. That's that's a good reason to reject it. Um, theologically, the book is essentially a work against idolatry and pagan religion in a broad sense relying on um, Jeremiah 10 and 29, and it almost makes it homiletical like a sermon. And De Silva summarizes the document as a sustained, if poorly organized, polemic against the worship of idols, and the author seeks to help Jews sustain commitment to monotheism. So like our previous works mentioned, or some of our previous works mentioned, this letter didn't have a particular or profound influence on Jewish writings because of its familiarity against Gentile idolatry. Uh, the same could be said in regards to its influence on the New Testament. Now, in the post-New Testament church, however, it was viewed as part of Jeremiah. Um, some would say because it was included within Jeremiah, so it was a little bit harder to discern because it wasn't a separate book. Um, but it was not really questioned until Jerome. And you even see that with Athanasius, including the letter of Jeremiah in Jeremiah. And Athanasius rejects the rest of the Apocrypha or Deuterocanonical books. So next, the editions of Daniel. There are three editions to the book of Daniel. The first is the prayer of Azariah and the song of the three Jews. And then there's Susanna and then Bell and the dragon. Uh, it appears that they developed between the third and second century BC. And then were later attached to Daniel when Daniel was translated into Greek. Now where these editions go in Daniel um, in modern Orthodox and Catholic Bibles, the prayer of Azariah and the Song of the Three Jews appears in chapter 3 as verses 24 through 90. And then you have Susanna being considered chapter 13 and Bell and the Dragon being considered chapter 14 in Catholic editions, while Susanna is considered uh, prior to Daniel 1 and Bell and the Dragon is considered chapter 13 in Orthodox Bibles. So there's a little bit of difference where those are placed there. The prayer of Azariah and the Song of the Three Jews is an expansion of chapter 3 of Daniel, but it also has no references to chapter 3 or the events of chapter 3, which makes it subject, uh, to say the least. And the prayer is a psalm of confession um, for the sins of the entire community. 
Amy Willis states the reference to a wicked king and the language of self-sacrifice suggests a historical context similar of that of Daniel 7 through 12, a time when the temple was desecrated. Um, in terms of its influence, the addition would be used at some point in public worship in the early church and gain popularity, and it remains popular within uh, the Catholic, Anglican, and Episcopal churches today. Susanna is a short Jewish story that is typical of, um, you know, general Second Temple period literature. Uh, that would be between 515 and 570 BC. Um, and similarities can be found particularly between Susanna and Daniel chapter 1 through 6. But the story takes place in a local court in Babylon where there are struggles among the Jews and the emphasis is on virtue and proper living according to Mosaic law. Susanna um, is noted as an uh, a detective story. It's an investigation. It's considered one of the first detective stories with its historicity being considered fictitious because of its formation. So while it's considered an entertaining tale, Susanna reflects convictions of the Jewish people of that day. And in regards to its influence, it would not be accepted among the Jews as canon but it is cited by Irenaeus and his work against heresies to denounce elders who use their positions to serve themselves. And additionally, the book has inspired art um, and catacombs and has been retold in medieval Renaissance and Restoration poems and plays throughout the years. So for Bell and the Dragon, it is not about a dragon and this is how we usually think of it, but rather a dragon could be understood as serpent, and it describes various rituals involving serpents that were considered sacred, and it centers around Daniel's exposure of idolatry. He ridicules Babylon idols, and his boldness leads to his life being at risk, and Daniel is eventually rescued by God, and the king recognizes this as a miraculous work of God in the life of Daniel, and so the tale reflects the court tales that you see in Daniel 1 through 6, but it is noted that it's not historical narrative because of its historical discrepancies, such as the Temple of Bell's presence during the time of Xerxes I, um, and among other things. So instead, the narrative is considered a general uh, polemic against idolatry and the folly of idols and idolatry. Uh, again, that's one of those things where how it's presented is kind of shifted because of the discrepancies, uh, similar to um, what we find in Judith that we talked about last episode. Now, just like the last edition of Daniel, this one didn't have much popularity, but it was utilized by Irenaeus, and he quotes this as a text to witness to uh, the God of Christians being the God of the living, and then Clement of Alexandria would use it for apologetics purposes in terms of the ministry of Habakkuk and when he lived. So let's move into 1 Maccabees. And like I said in the last episode, I have ordered these books in a way that's not normally ordered. Like 1 and 2 Maccabees is typically separated from 3rd and 4th Maccabees, but we're just going to go 1, 2, 3, and 4 for the sake of my sanity. I just think it makes sense. So we're going to do it that way. But 1 Maccabees gets its title from the name Maccabee, <laughs> or um, Maccabeus, which is a Hebrew nickname meaning hammer. Uh, and it was given to a Judas Maccabeus, one of the protagonists in the narrative. Eventually, in Christian tradition, the name would be applied to all of the family's descendants, the Hasmoneans. 
and the Hasmoneans or Hasmonians or both ways. I always those those names that end with the N E A N S. I always like the Ian's pronunciations. What am I going to do? Anyway, the, the Hasmoneans are important. It's always good to read up on them. And actually, First Maccabees is beneficial in general for the context of the New Testament. We'll talk about that here in a second. So Hippolytus, an early Christian writer, um, seems to be the first who uses the title Maccabees here. Uh, Jerome actually included First Maccabees in the Vulgate because he knew of a Hebrew edition of this book. But the Hebrew version since has not been discovered. Uh, Jews never consider the book canonical, but the book is considered very important um, as a religious text describing the origin of the festival of Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication or the Festival of Dedication, whichever name you want to pick. Uh, and the book is one of great importance as a historical source for the history of Judea, specifically from uh, 175 to 135 BC or 164 to 134 BC, roughly. And this is because it dealt with a leader known as Antiochus, who was a leader of the Seleucids. And so whenever you read First Maccabees, you find that it centers around Mattathias and his sons who delivered Israel from the Seleucid rulers and the corrupt Jewish elites leading to the restoration of Israel as independent. The text would be important in terms of its formation of Jewish nationalism and political messianic hopes. Um, so while the book is one of great historical significance, there are issues with it when we compare it to other historical sources, such as 2 Maccabees, along with Josephus's writings and so forth. Uh, De Silva points out, for example, that the author uses a Seleucid system for dating, meaning that the beginning of the year can be in April in the eastern part of the Seleucid Empire or October in the western parts. This becomes more convoluted in the fact that the author of 1 Maccabees likely used sources that have different starting points in the year, which also emerges when we reconstruct the history behind 2 Maccabees and try to reconcile it with the narrative of 1 Maccabees. So the historical evidence outside of the book of 1 Maccabees shows that uh, there are other issues, such as contradicting the, the motive behind Antiochus's campaigns and the events in various ways. One of them being the idea that Antiochus was focused upon Judea rather than having a mentality of an empire-wide agenda or campaign. First and second Maccabees additionally find themselves at odds with one of their various points, and so that's significant to know here. And then at the end of First Maccabees, the author um, actually says that we should pardon him for any mistakes that might have been made in the pitting of his work. At any rate, the book's influence and its value for history is significant. And its greatest legacy is essentially kindling this expectation of the, the Messiah within the Roman period. And some have suggested that the events um, of what occurred during this time period are the reasons why Rome had constant struggles with Jewish uprisings, subversion, and insurrectionists. And insurrectionists were common and crucified in the time of the New Testament. And I would say this is reflected within the New Testament at the trial of Jesus, where the Jewish people accuse uh, Jesus of claiming to be the king of the Jews, which implies subversion of the Roman Empire because the Herodians were placed there by the Romans. Uh, they were in their pocket, essentially. Uh, so it would be subversive 
uh, given the Herodian status within the Roman Empire. Uh, and crucifixion would be a sensical um, punishment and a common punishment for insurrectionists. And of course, there's a lot of discussion about that. In fact, there is one theory that Barabbas or Jesus Barabbas, who was released by Pilate, was an insurrectionist himself. Um, at any rate, De Silva points out that there's a connection in the book about the zeal for the law that has violent action implied in it against renegades and apostate Jews and Gentiles. So the persecution of Christians by Paul and against Paul, for example, could have been influenced by this mentality. And you kind of see Paul talking about this, this zeal um, in his own works. Josephus, the Jewish historian, would utilize 1st Maccabees and Jewish antiquities, and he would uh, edit it with materials from Greek historians to supplement, and he used it as a source, essentially. The early church influence is fairly minimal, while 2nd Maccabees would have more impact, and we'll talk about why in here in a second, but a contemporary influence is the role of Maccabees in terms of eschatology, actually. And the reason why is because Antiochus is proposed to be Little Horn of Daniel's fourth beast um, in one theory of eschatology. So that's interesting there. Uh, so for 2nd Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees is not a sequel to 1st Maccabees, but rather it is a type of prequel that informs readers of the period from 175 to 167 BC. Uh, the book focuses more upon the role of the Jewish high priest in the threat of Hellenization to the culture of the Jews. It also presents readers with various martyrs as heroes for the movement of resistance, and they are pictured as exemplary figures of piety, and the book also has attention directed towards Hanukkah, uh, the rededication of the temple, and Ninnikor's Day. And Ninnikor's Day fell out of calendars, but Hanukkah and rededication are still celebrated. Uh, the book is an essentially, or is rather, an abridged edition of a longer work by a Jason of Cyrene that has not been discovered. Jason's work apparently was five scrolls detailing the history of the Maccabean Revolt, and thus you have this abridged edition. Now, its influence really led to the acceptance of Hanukkah into the calendar of the Jewish festival, which, again, if we're talking about New Testament influence, you see that culture being reflected in John 10, 22, uh, which was likely observed by Jesus. But also the martyr narratives in this book would also be influential uh, not only for the church in the early church period, but the formation of Fourth Maccabees. Uh, the martyrdom um, narratives featured in this work would heavily um, influence the view of martyrdom for early Christians. That this idea that the righteous can give themselves over to torture and death and thus have their death act as a means of mercy for others via their vindication. But the martyrs were symbols of courage in the midst of persecution, and the tale of the mother and her son that it featured in 2nd Maccabees would actually be retold numerous times. In fact, there's a tale in the early church of a mother and her children who were martyred. I can't remember under who, maybe Diocletian. Uh, and people believe that that reflects that there, or there's a parallel there, something like that. But what's interesting is that the martyrs in 2nd Maccabees are the only non-Christian saints in the Catholic and Orthodox churches, commemorated on August 1st. 2nd Maccabees is also where the contention of praying for the dead appears, 
and acts of atonement for the dead and intercession of the saints, though it has been debated that the text of Second Maccabees um, even has this as a doctrine that is being taught. Um, but we're not going to debate that here. Now, when we look at Third Maccabees, it is not connected to the historical account of the Maccabean Revolt or First and Second Maccabees, but rather it's a fictional story set 50 years prior to that event about Jews who were living in Egypt underneath Ptolemy uh, around 221 to 204 BC. It's ultimately a drama of danger and deliverance of the Jewish people in the midst of their enemies. And so the book is considered an edifying tale that is historical or loosely fixed in history, sort of like, again, a Greek romance um, in the classical literary sense of romance. Really, the purposes of the book are debated, but what is agreed upon is the message of God's faithfulness to hear the prayers and deliver Jews who are outside of Jerusalem. Ultimately, 3rd Maccabees had little influence on Jewish and Christian authors, except perhaps facilitating tension between Jews and Gentiles as uh, rhetoric against Gentiles and assimilation of Gentile ideals are decried as empty-headed, abominable, and lawless, um, you know, as time went on. Fourth uh, Maccabees is linked with first and second Maccabees in that it focuses on the same events, um, though the family of Judas Maccabeus is never mentioned. And instead, the interest of the author is upon the torture and death of the martyrs mentioned in second Maccabees chapter seven that we briefly talked about already. The authorship of the book is debated. Uh, Eusebius and Jerome both thought that the book was written by Josephus, but this is rejected by most scholars because it contains errors that Josephus did not make in his own works such as calling Seleucus IV and Antiochus IV father and son rather than brothers. Uh, additionally, the book is dated to around the mid-first century AD. Now, a unique element of this book is that it interacts with more Hellenistic philosophy than any other of the books in the Apocrypha. Its primary thesis is that devout reason is sovereign over emotions, and this premise would ultimately be found agreeable to Greek and Latin writers alike. Now, where the author differs from its contemporaries in terms of this idea of philosophy is stating that it is not reason alone, but pious or devout reason, that is, reason that is trained by God via the Torah or the law, that is um, sovereign over emotions or desirable. Because of this book's late dating, its influence is impossible to really discuss, but Regardless, the book proves beneficial in understanding the historical, social, and theological environment of the New Testament era in some shape or form. So first and second Esdras um, kind of gets complicated. And I briefly summarized the issue with that in episode one of this little three-part, but we'll, we'll rehash it here. But first Esdras, in terms of the apocryphal work, is essentially a retelling of second Chronicles 35 through 36, Ezra and Nehemiah, but in a way that includes its own narrative regarding the context of the three bodyguards. And you'll have to go back and read through those if you want to get that context. Like I said, the, the difficulty with first and second Esdras or Ezra deals with how they are numbered because they are numbered differently in different traditions. So Ezra and Nehemiah are called first and second Esdras in the Vulgate and Old Catholic translations. But Ezra and Nehemiah are grouped into one book labeled as 2nd Ezra's and the Septuagint tradition and stuff like that. 
Um, overall, there have been four books with the name Ezra or Ezra's attached to them. Uh, sometimes they're referred to as Ezra A, B, C, and D, or one, two, three, and four. Simple. Sometimes the first two, that is one and two, are called Ezra and Nehemiah, while three and four are called First Ezra and Second Ezra. So Protestants and Catholics reject third and fourth Ezra's, which are typically labeled as first and second Ezra whenever we're talking about. It. So whenever I talk about first Ezra here, I'm talking about third Ezra. Whenever I talk about second Ezra, I'm talking about fourth Ezra. <laughs> so further complicated is that second Ezra, uh, which is technically fourth Ezra is actually a composite of four, five, and six Ezra. Now in Orthodox circles, first Ezra's is still third Ezra like ours. While second Ezra is Ezra and Nehemiah, and that is first and second Ezra that we have as Ezra and Nehemiah in our Protestant Bibles. So additionally, there are um, different positions on the status of four or second Ezra's in the Orthodox circles. Now, I'll just be straight with you. I've looked over that summarization several times and... I still get confused by it. I'm not I'm not a numbers guy. I'll just be, be honest with you. Uh, but regardless, we'll be using first and second Ezra's and the typical Protestant and Catholic distinction. So uh, first Ezra is third Ezra and second Ezra is fourth Ezra and both are rejected as Apocrypha. Um, and the value of first Ezra's work is ultimately found in textual criticism of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then second Ezra's being that composite of three separate writings, it's typically not considered canon in any circles, though sometimes Orthodox Bibles include it. Um, again, the numbering difference is really what makes it difficult. Orthodox Bibles have a second Ezra's, but again, for them, this is Ezra and Nehemiah grouped together as one book rather than the apocryphal work that we call second Ezra's. So the prayer of Manasseh uh, is what we'll touch on next, and then Psalm 151, and then we're done. So in 2 Chronicles 33, 10 through 13, the king of Judah, Manasseh, was taken captive to Babylon on account of his failure to listen to God. And there he prayed to God and was released from captivity. This writing, the prayer of Manasseh, claims to be that prayer, even though it seems to have been written um, after the B.C. era in Greek, which causes issues. Uh, it is found in various Christian works, including a collection called the Odes, which are a collection of prayers and hymns from various sources. The prayer is still utilized in liturgy today in Eastern Orthodox circles, but it's rejected by Catholics, Protestants, and Jews as canon. And really that goes into an interesting discussion of how Eastern Orthodoxy understands tradition and canon, uh, primarily with what's regarded in terms of liturgy, but I will move on. Last is Psalm 151, which is an added psalm, as you can guess, in the Greek Old Testament, that does not appear in the Hebrew text, and it's rejected by Catholics and Protestants alike. The psalm in some manuscripts um, attributes the psalm to David, while others do not make the expression. It is likely written in the 3rd century BC, and interestingly enough, there was a Hebrew version found in Qumran with an additional four verses. The contents is essentially a first-person account by David and makes references to David's youth that we see in 1 Samuel 16 through 17. But ultimately, the psalm's influence is minimal, aside from the psalm's status as canonical in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. So I hope that these three brief episodes on the Apocrypha 
let you know a little bit more about the Apocrypha. Like I said, two resources worth picking up on this are the New Oxford Annotated Apocrypha, the New Revised Standard Edition, which has its own Apocrypha standalone, and then it has one with the, the Bible. You pick it up, it has introductions and context and outlines before each book, along with, with notes, like a study Bible. Uh, that'd be a good way to read through it if you wanted to, um, without it being too hefty or strenuous. And if you wanted to go deeper and face that more uphill battle, you can get Introduction to the Apocrypha by De Silva. And those are both excellent books. So that's it for this mini-series on the Apocrypha. Um, God bless you all, and I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. Yeah.